0: But let me tell you what we're doing this morning. We are, uh, this is round four of trying to prepare as we move toward Easter. You know, that's what we do as we come into Advent and we prepare for uh, Christmas. We look at passages that help us think about God becoming a man. And so what we've been doing the last few weeks is to look at passages that help us think about as God became a man, uh, as He moved towards suffering. And finally, death and resurrection. Why did he have to do that? Why is it so important? So what I want to look at this morning is going way back to Genesis 2 and 3. I'm going to read some excerpts from chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. Those excerpts are in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this bit that Jimmy Kimmel does a day or two after Halloween, uh, a few years ago, Jimmy Kimmel, his late-night uh, talk show host, he, he started putting out this request that parents video their children, you know, maybe the day after they got all, the, all their Halloween loot, and to, to hide the loot, and then to tell the child that Jimmy Kimmel told me to eat all your Halloween candy, and then video their response. And if you don't believe in human depravity, you should watch these clips. I mean, children will go absolutely apoplectic. Their faces will go red. They'll hit their parent, scream at their parent. They'll use words the parents didn't know that they knew yet. They'll just snap. But, okay, for the, for the 20-something ones like that, they'll also j- just show maybe one or two angel children you know like the child that goes oh that's okay and and you literally you'll hear the studio audience go oh so one time he was showing it and it was just this terrible barrage of like just children hitting their parents and throwing stuff and i hate you and screaming and then it showed this boy maybe about i don't know eight years old and uh and so you hear the mom say i've got to tell you something uh, Jimmy Kimmel told me to eat all your Halloween candy. It's all gone. And uh, this eight-year-old boy said, that's okay. I just want you to be happy. It's <laughs> like, oh, ouch. Uh, just after all that poison and toxin, it was just so kind, you know, like so thoughtful. Um, what I want to throw out to you this morning is to think about, can you, can you picture God saying that. I, 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 and let me put it in the past tense. It's still true, but I'm going to put it in the past tense. I, I wanted you to be happy. Um, it's not unusual in, in earlier Christian writings to find Christians talking about that the intent of God for human beings, in fact, you'll see this phrase, is that that men and women be, quote, holy and happy. And holy didn't mean that, like, to always run around being, you know, doing religious activities and church activities. The first chapters of Genesis have nothing about uh, what we would call, like, worship services. There's uh, eating and marriage and work, responsibilities, time season. It's very earthy, kind of what we would call Monday through Saturday. But the, the, the design of God for men and women was that we would be holy and happy. Now, if that is true, and you look around at the world now, and you look at your own life, what happened? And that's what I want to look at this morning, is in a very real way, we can't understand the significance of the cross, of the, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, if we don't understand this thing called the curse. Uh, I'm reading some excerpts to try to cover a lot of ground, but <coughs> uh, God has made first human beings. He's given them responsibilities. He's give, giving them responsibilities. One in particular, a prohibition, And when they break it, um, the aftermath of what happens. So let's start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, it's Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "'You may surely eat of every tree of the garden.'" But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the, woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Verse 17. And to Adam he, God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you Thank you for what you're allowing us to do right now. And if we were left to our own devices to try to think up or reason or imagine our own origins or the origins of our world or why the world is as it is, uh, Father, how far astray we would go. Um, We know that you haven't given us every detail that we might like to know about how the world started how it worked, uh, how we started, how that works. But Lord, thank you that you've given us all that we need. And uh, Father, in your mercy, would you open up your word to us? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me, let me start on a, on a theological note. And, and before I say this theological note, I just want to acknowledge, you know, we, we never assume that everyone in the room is a Christian. Uh, we never assume that everyone in the room believes the Bible, views it as authoritative. Um, you might be sitting here somewhat unfamiliar with the Bible. You may have heard what I just read <clears throat> as more of a mythic account. That's not how it's presented in Scripture, but that might be h- how you hear it or how you have heard it described. But there are those who do believe the Bible in this room. There are those who, who do view it as authoritative and 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 truthful, and reliable. So to you, let me me just acknowledge something. There's a real theological dilemma for people who believe the Bible. Because the way the Bible presents the first man, Adam, and I'm not going to preach two different sermons, but just so so I'm acknowledging this because it's important. The blame and the guilt is not laid at the first person who ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first person to eat was Eve. But blame is laid at the feet of Adam because he was acting for all mankind when he acted. Now, when you hear that, you know, it's hard not to think and feel, well, that's not fair. You know, and I think especially when you've grown up in a democracy where I vote... And and ideally, I I help the person, the man or woman who's going to represent my interests and what's important to me. I want that person in power, acting for me, doing things that affect my life. But I don't want someone to act for me that's imposed on me. It's not fair that Adam acted for us. Here's the theological dilemma of the Bible believer. If it's unfair for that man to act for you, it's unfair for another man to act for you. And those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ are are putting everything on the fact that another man acted for them. Uh, This is how scripture works, if I may put it that way, is that there is one person who really acted on your behalf and determined your destiny right now. That might seem, again, far-fetched, science fiction, mythic, weird, whatever. That's how Scripture presents it. That either Adam has still set the determination for your life, or another person has acted for you. So, let's look at this. When when Adam acted for us, what did it do? And the the term that I'm using just to cover a lot of ground is the curse, and God is actually going to use that term that the creation, the, the materiality of earth and our bodies and our souls and our identities, our feelings, our wills, our thinking is, is fallen. Let's, uh, let's look at it in these terms. We've got three points. First off, the backdrop of the curse, the extent of the curse and the duration of the curse, all right? The backdrop of the curse, the extent of the curse, and the duration of the curse. The backdrop of the curse is that God is very clearly presented as being over-the-top, generous, and artistic, and kind. Uh, Let let me just start with the term, the Garden of Eden. You know, at the beginning of our text, it alludes to the Garden of Eden. Do you know what Eden means? It's actually a tough term to translate, but Eden means something along the lines of delight, luxury, pleasure. And apparently, Eden was a region of which the Garden was a part and, without getting too much into the muckety muck, the language that 's used of the garden suggests something that 's less like a garden that you and I would have in a yard or in a park and, and more something along the lines of what we would call a royal park, like maybe something that covers massive acres or even square miles that that 's what the garden of delight and pleasure was and that 's just already an introduction is. It's as if God says, what, where would I like men and women made in my image to live? And he just gives them utter beauty and generosity. And then you, before our passage, you get this language of, and I know this can be tough on people who are meat eaters, but, and, and we don't totally know how this works, and how, did microbes die, or was that, did, did material decay? How did that, I, I don't know. But... <clears throat> Food is overwhelmingly described in terms of of plant life, but even if you're a a, a big-time carnivore, listen to this language. The end of chapter 1 in Genesis. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. I mean, just stop and think about ideal. We can't really picture it. Ideal, untainted Fully flourishing, never blighted pomegranates and oranges and figs. And just this fruit after fruit, the, the aesthetics of it, the smell of it. My wife's stepdad said that back in the day, back be- before Orlando was so massively developed, when you came into the area of Orlando, you could start to smell the groves of the orange trees. In your car. Can you imagine the aroma of these trees? Uh, Chapter 2, before our passage, it says that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then look in verse 16 at the top. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And this word every keeps coming up. I, I'm giving you every plant, every tree. I've made them beautiful. I've made them delicious. We can't picture, really, what this would be like. I've, um, I was trying to think of something that gets at what would this at least be, what's a pale reflection of this. For several years, I've been sort of fascinated with the work of a guy. Who's a, he's a gardener in Washington State. His name is Paul Gauchy. And uh, there's been a documentary made about him, 40-something years ago, he moved his family from the L.A. area up into Washington State, and he buys some land to kind of just have a small little one-family farm and uh, mostly an orchard, and he drills a well. He's already bought the land, and there's just almost no water. He's moved his family out here. He's going to be growing plants, and, like, they don't have a lot of water. And according to Paul Gouchy, he talks to God about it and says, what do I do about this orchard? And God says to him, well, look in the woods behind you. And so he kind of turns around, and you see just these lush, growing, thriving trees. And uh, and he goes into the woods, and he starts to pull back just the, you know, the under, not undergrowth, but just the stuff that's fallen. It's just lush, dark, crumbly. It's everything gardeners and farmers are trying to get, and it's happening in the woods without trying. And long story short, he ends up covering every part of the garden where he grows anything with just stacks of wood chips, chipped up trees, and he hasn't watered his garden in almost 40 years, and he just believes that the water is retained, and these wood chips retain nutrients, and, and roots can move through it better, and I don't understand all the mechanics of it, but he's a very generous man. He lets people come tour his garden once a week, and he'll let them just eat anything they want. Just come in, eat anything you want. And uh, on this documentary, there's one, there's one scene where a woman takes fennel. Now, not an apple, not another fruit. She takes fennel, and she takes a bite of it and goes, it, it, Like, what does it taste like when you eat something that has the water and the nutrients and is flourished the way it can? I don't think he has an unfallen garden. But when she took a bite of that kind of plant, like, her, like she almost got teary. She just went, this is unbelievable. What, what was it like to eat that food? The backdrop of the curse is God's artistry and generosity and love for people. That's the backdrop. You can't understand the tragedy of it if you don't get that. What's the extent? God had already hinted at this in verse 17 of chapter 2. Let me begin in verse 16 at the beginning of the sentence. He says to Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, God doesn't explain what that means. He just says, if you eat of it, you will die that day. It makes you wonder if when Adam took the... It doesn't say apple, by the way. We always portray it as an apple. We don't know what fruit. But when he took that bite, did he recoil thinking he was about to die? But he doesn't drop dead that day, does he? But something about him dies. What dies that day? the connection that he has with God, that he showed up with, that made him blissful, that made Eve blissful, that he could always take for granted, and now the connection is broken and his nature has changed. Um, Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 17. I don't include the earlier language of God what he says first to the serpent and then to Eve on the heels of Adam's disobedience. But look at what he says to Adam. Verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now catch this, he doesn't say, "Cursed are you. What he says is, Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of your act, the ground is cursed. Now, the text doesn't say all creation, but the rest of Scripture makes makes it plain. This is where things began to fall apart. You know, the ground is a very logical way to explain it. This is your point of contact with the creation. You're not in the water. You're not in the sky. This is where you connect with the rest of creation. It is now cursed because of you. And I, I Okay, this covers so much ground. I cannot do better than our catechism. Presbyterians have a catechism. That's a teaching device, question-answer teaching device. We actually have two catechisms, but the one that people usually cite is the shorter one. It's from the 1640s. Now, listen to this. This is old-fashioned language, but it is substantive. Here's the question. What is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? Very old-fashioned language to our ears, but it's saying, how bad is the, the condition into which humanity fell because of Adam's disobedience? What is the misery of that estate wherein man fell? And here's the answer. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. That's the aftermath. That's the extent of the curse. Now, I want to hit something head-on, and time doesn't allow for an in-depth response to this, but I've said it before, and I feel like I've got to say it again in light of what we're talking about, that one of the biggest obstacles... To faith in biblical Christianity is this point of, all right, I, I don't get it. How can the Bible present God as being loving? What did we just say? He's so loving, he's so generous. Present God as loving, and God is all powerful, and the world is so messed up. And there's so much pain, and there's so much sickness, there's so much poverty. There's so much brokenness of the human body, brokenness of mental health. How can God be all-powerful, all-loving, and you have a world like this? Now, theologically, part of the answer is the curse. But that doesn't cut it, does it? I mean, if you lose someone to disease, uh, if you see a child that's born with a birth defect, if you, see, uh, if you begin, begin to really investigate... Like, what does it mean that human trafficking is so globally extensive? Does, does it suffice to just say, well, the world is cursed? All right. L- let me ask you this. And I know this is a what-if scenario, but just humor me. If, if God were to say, all right, I tell you what, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a great discretion here. In fact, why don't you put together a committee for this? I will remove... of the effects of the curse and you discuss it and you decide what 5% is retained. Now, I mean, you know, it's not hard to think of things we'd love to get rid of. All cancer. Bone, pancreatic, lung, colon, all cancer gone, all blindness, all deafness, all deformities. You know, I mean of course, on and on and on, get rid of all those, what 5% would you retain? If God said, I'll, I'll rid the world of 95% of it, what would you retain? Pneumonia? Do you know how many people die of pneumonia? I and mean, would you tell somebody that loses their beloved grandparent, well, we chose pneumonia because it That was one of the things that was left. Do you think that would suffice for that person? And, And I know it's a ridiculous hypothetical question, but what I'm trying to push us on is, at the end of the day, we're just not okay with the fact that God has the right to bring a curse. And I don't believe that Adam and Eve could understand what would happen if they disobeyed. But they were connected to God and they lived in delight and pleasure. And they have everything, not just that they could ever need, they could ever want. And God gives one prohibition and says, If you eat of that, you will die that day. And they do, and the curse comes. That the scriptures just say, This is true. And as as Meg read earlier from Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans. The animals feel it. The materiality of the earth feels it. And we feel it in our bodies and our souls every day. That's the extent. What about the duration of the curse? When God says, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you, what visual does he provide for that? Because it's not like at at that second the earth just changed into a crazy field with no order to it. It still retained all this beauty. But he tells him a visual. Verse 18, chapter 3. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. I'll still provide for you. The earth will retain artistry, generosity. The earth will still produce. Some of you love to garden. You feel the effects of that. The earth is still a beautiful creation. But it's also going to fight you. And part of what that fight will look like is thorns and thistles. And I want you to think about that that image of thorns and thistles. Uh, One of the things that I started doing a few years ago just for my own self on Good Friday, I'm not saying this to be showy, I'm just saying this has been something that I've done um, really since we've had a Good Friday service. Our Good Friday service is the one service where we ask people to leave silently. Uh, Usually our lobby in the room is just a, a beehive, but it's the one Sunday we say, please exit silently. And, um, and so I'll slip out, and my office is next door, and I'll go to my study. And I've started going through the Gospels and just writing down the things that people did to Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. And it, it's just awful. And if you really take the time to do it, it's just... Like, if you've ever really been hit or really slapped, or really punched, or hit with a stick. It just, it describes these things that we forget. The crucifixion's awful enough, but the punching and the slapping, the punching and the slapping when he's blindfolded and you don't know it's coming, the being spit upon, When just shy of the crucifixion itself, a Roman scourging, which would just rip the very flesh of your body up. A Roman scourging. But part of the sufferings of Jesus is that at some point, Roman soldiers are abusing him, and they know that the charge on him is that he claims to be the king of the Jews, so they're going to dress him up like a king. And so uh, they find a robe, and they put a, a robe on him, And they find a a stick to to be like a little makeshift scepter. And they give him the scepter. And, uh, okay, if he's going to be a king, he's got to have a crown. What do we have where we can make a crown? And whether it's one or two soldiers or however many, somebody looks over and there's thorns. Why are there thorns? They're thorns because the earth is cursed. And of all the things for these Roman soldiers to reach for, they reach for thorns. And they craft a little crown and they put it on Jesus and they crucify him and raise him up. And so there he is, unclothed with a crown of all things of thorns. That is not coincidental. What is God saying? He's bearing your sin. But he's not just bearing your sin. He's bearing depression. He's bearing mental illness. He's bearing all infections. He's bearing every virus. He's bearing every deformity. He's bearing drought. He's bearing famine. He's bearing racism in war. He's bearing everything to take it away. Um, Did you know, again, Genesis doesn't have all the details we want, and the end of the Bible doesn't have all the details we want, but let me give you one detail. When you get to the last chapter of the Bible, literally the last one, Revelation 22, And it gives us this brief vision. It says the tree of life is there. Adam and Eve were cut off from it after they sinned. But now the tree of life is there. And anyone who wants to can eat of it. And it's for the healing of the nations. You can eat this fruit and glow with health. But then the next thing it says is, and there's nothing cursed that in the new heavens, in the new earth, God completely removes the curse because His Son bore it and paid for it. Do you believe that? You know, because the ultimate answer to why doesn't God do something about human trafficking? Why doesn't God do something about children who suffer? Why doesn't God do something about all the people who are crushed by poverty and oppression? The ultimate answer is not my little 95%, 5% hypothetical thing that I threw out to you. The ultimate answer is this. Our lives are a little bitty container called maybe 100 years, and then there is this vast eternity that swallows our thoughts and we can't understand it. And for God, on behalf of his people, through his son, to make all things new in this giant eternity, and for us to look at this little container and say, you don't care, is so short-sighted. And unbelieving, and quite frankly, it is hard-hearted of us, and we need to repent. Would you look at God incarnate being flogged by a Roman soldier and say, Why don't you care about people? He bears the curse to take it away forever. If you are not in Christ, you are still in Adam. He's the determinative man for your future. The curse remains. You might have an okay life, might have a pretty good life, might have a life that you like. But this is as good as it'll get. Uh, For the person who places everything, their sin... Their failures, their body, their soul entrusts it all to Christ and says, save me. Just understand that your home is not here. This is not your home. We love this place. We serve. We give. We engage. But your home is where there is no curse. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please make this real to us. Lord, show us that the resurrected body of your Son is the down payment, as it were, that there is a new earth coming, that there is an uncursed eternity for your people. And Lord, for we who feel the curse emotionally, Financially, physically, chronic pain, relationally. Have mercy on us. Enable us to see you as good as we see your son. And we pray in his name. Amen.